everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is a creator-owned spotlight. We're going to be talking about a current Zoop campaign with one of the writers and co-creators of the property. The campaign is for a book called Sex, Spies, and Rock and Roll, Three Very Good Things. And it's my pleasure to welcome Jeff Messer to the show. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jace. Thanks for having me, man. And yeah, who doesn't like sex, spies, and rock and roll, right? Yeah. I think that has a higher approval rating than uh, than Congress does. Well, wait a minute. Maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, they're all very, very good things. Uh, I mentioned this is volume three, so there's been uh, two previous um, campaigns, uh, uh, self-publishing campaigns for the first couple of volumes. So uh, why don't you start off by giving us a little bit of an origin story of um, – the the property and then we'll talk a little bit about those previous campaigns absolutely yeah the um kind of the way this whole thing started it was born out of the uh, the pandemic but it, it certainly reaches back a lot further than that uh when i was in high school and this was uh, dare i say in in the 1980s uh, when i was in high school i fancied myself as as an up-and-coming spy novelist you know, I was going to write the next great American spy novel and uh, and worked on a bunch of writing when I was in high school. In fact, I probably looked like I was the most studious person there. I'm sure my teachers were confounded that I was making, you know, C's and, and maybe uh, B minuses in some of my classes. Like, But he's taking notes like verbatim. It's like he's writing all the time. I see him. He looks like the most studious guy. How can he not be making straight A's? But because I was sitting there writing spy stories and making silly stuff up. <laughs> and um, I, and I, I had thought about trying to pick it back up in the 90s. Uh, it entered my mind to try and, and get it done as a comic book in the, the early 90s. And uh, just didn't happen. Just it was not meant to be. I got involved in theater and uh, performance. And I started uh, writing plays as opposed to novels because uh plays were all about dialogue and man i was getting tired of describing you know you know the way the sky looked and the way the tree blew in the breeze and all that stuff the, the prose was just killing me so i'm like oh let's only write just dialogue it's much easier but um <clears throat> during the pandemic i was uh, it was determined to work on some projects creatively uh, you know i saw a lot of people who were in creative areas, theater being a, a great example, musicians being another, who once the pandemic really, really hit, uh, it, it was crippling to a lot of people because they couldn't perform. They couldn't, you know, have that creative outlet in their lives that they had sort of come to depend on. And it caused me to sort of get very introspective and, and think as a writer, I'm going to really focus on writing. You know, I'm stuck at home for five months. I might as well, you know, do some creative things. And I was already moving in the direction of comic books at that point in time uh, with a, a comic book adaptation of the Robin Hood legend that was based on a play that I had co-written with a, a buddy of mine, Robert Akers, that had been hugely successful. And we had thought, hey, let's turn this into a comic. And we were working with an artist in England uh, on doing that comic when the pandem pandemic hit. And instead of stopping, I thought, no, let's just really work harder because we all have time now. And so we got that one finished and I started thinking about what was next. And I stumbled across these old spy novel ideas from the 80s and 
I thought, well, I wonder if these would would work. I wonder if this this holds up. And I, I looked at some pages and I dug through some notebooks and I thought, should I make it contemporary? Should I make it a modern thing? And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll keep it in the 80s because spies in the 80s was a lot more fun. Fashion and music in the 80s, a lot more fun. There's, there's, it felt like more to be made of it, uh, to, to keep it as a period piece. And so I started working on it, found an artist, uh, sent him some stuff to look at, and he sent me back some sketches and drawings that were just perfect. And I thought, this, this is it. I think I'm, I'm going to do this. And uh, my son, who's in high school at the time, finishing his, his high school during a pandemic not being a very fun thing to do, but we were having lots of conversations about what he wanted to do with his life and, you know, where he was wanting to go. And he expressed some interest in creativity. And lo and behold, he had been writing a screenplay, which I had not known about at all. Um, you know, kids don't talk to parents when they're teenagers anyway, right? <laughs> so uh, I was like, well, let me read it. Let me see what it is. And so he, he sent me a copy uh, and I started reading it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the same kind of crazy stuff I was writing when I was his age, you know, action, adventure, espionage. It was, it was like all kind of the same sort of stuff. And I decided to, uh, to start adapting his screenplay as, as a backup feature for the comic. And as time went on, more backup features got added and it turned into an anthology book and it's kind of grown from there. And uh, I needed a good title, kind of a catch all title. It would be a great eye catching title for, for people to see what sums up this book. And it was like, well, you know, it's 80s, it's rock music and it's spies. And it's like, oh, wait, sex, spies and rock and roll. Boom. And it was just like that. It was like really quick. The idea hit me for that title and it was off to the races. Yeah. Now, you, you know, you mentioned it being said in the 80s and you know anybody who probably above the age of 12 during that <laughs> time really kind of knows that oh, feeling yeah. of dread, that feeling of, of, you know, menace with, you know, the superpowers of the world, kind of what's been called a cold war, cold war at that point for decades, just yeah. kind of the level of, of paranoia. So it certainly feeds into that sort of uh, genre. So once you started, you know, settling on this time period and started recruiting artists, was there any particular notes i mean were, were most of your artists familiar with that time period or what you know like how do you go about making sure the visuals capture that kind of existential sense of dread that you all <laughs> you know i remember laying in bed at night as a preteen, oh. like worried that bombs were falling at any any moment i'm sure you can relate oh oh man no i i remember those those movies that came on tv like right, you know, yeah the, the day after tomorrow yeah uh, the the kids standing next to the farmhouse looking at the missiles rising in the sky. Right, and yep. there, there was some TV miniseries called World War Three, where the Russians came across Alaska and were like, I was like traumatized. Yeah, you yeah. remember that there was one with George Papard and uh, Michael Janvis at Damnation Alley. They were oh my gosh, there's so so many like you know fear and gloom things. I yeah. remember, I remember on the school bus, like in 1983 or 84, being on the school bus. And talking philosophically, as you as philosophically as you can at the age of thirteen, but talking philosophically with other kids about, hey, you know, you know, I'll be turning eighteen by nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. 
it's, that's just in time for World War Three. Like yeah, we were doing yeah. the math on, on when the next war was going to be. Like we were postulating on when is the breaking point of the, the Cold War? When are we going to? It's like, we'll all be like drafted. We're all going to be forced to fight this war. Oh, my God. We were just in a panic. Um but, but you had to be there, right? Yeah. That's one of the things you had to be there. And most of the artists that I work with are too young to remember it. Uh, the first artist that I, I sent stuff to, um, well, first of all, the, 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 all the artists I work with have ended up being, uh, for the most part, from other countries uh, through social media and, and reaching out and finding artists from around the world. And I thought, oh, you know, international spy story. This will be great if I can have artists from around the world. But the, the the first guy that I reached out to, he's like 27 years old. He does he wasn't around in the 80s. He had no yeah. clue. And and we don't share a common language. I mean, thank goodness the technology exists with, you know, with uh, Google Translate and all of that stuff that you can type in Facebook Messenger, you can type an email and immediately translate it into your language. So it's seamless, but the colloquialisms and some of the other things don't translate as well. So I have to be very precise uh, with what I'm writing and communicating with them. But um, I, I send a ton of, of reference material uh, with them. And, and to me, it's turned into a lot of fun because, you know, you got did that Google search and you can spend three hours at 2 a.m. in the morning going down the, uh, the rabbit hole of men's fashion 1980s. And then <laughs> the pictures, the images come up and you're like, whoa, or here's the, here's the Google search hairstyles 1980s click just go to town go crazy and so um so i'll just like go through and find images and pictures and and fashion and, and so I'll, I'll attach it with all of the uh, script pages that i send out and um it's amazing how quickly the artists that i've been working with pick up on it though uh and i think it's because you know when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s the 50s were big like everything was like retro 1950s, you know, the the throwback to the, the origins of rock and roll in the 50s and all of that. So there was this retro 50s thing. I think Back to the Future, the movie, is such a perfect movie for the 80s because they go backwards 30 years. And then for the sequels, they go forwards 30 years and and they get the the, the future wrong, obviously, because we're already past that. But the fascination between the 80s and the 50s is kind of interesting. There's like some weird chord connecting the two. And I think now, you know, for the past almost 20 years at this point, the 80s have been very retro, have been very uh, much a, a, a thing of interest. You know, you see podcasts. I listen to a podcast called Stuck in the 80s, and it's all about the 1980s. And it has a huge listenership. You know, there's uh, some cruise line does an 80s cruise every year. So it's like, there's something there. There's definitely something there. So I do think even if they weren't born in the 80s, like I wasn't born in the 50s, but I know a lot about the 50s because it was it, it's an attractive retro thing that I grew up with. And so I think the 80s have that same kind of appeal and it makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, I know, to answer your question, long story short, too late. I just send lots of pictures, lots of reference, and uh, boy, it's a lot of fun finding those images. Yeah, I suppose that's probably fun as well. That collaboration, kind of introducing people to you know what was going on back then. Because I, yeah. I agree with you 100 percent about the nostalgia thing, and it started I don't know maybe you know 10 or 15 years ago now, especially with yeah. the music. And I sort of feel like for 
us that lived through it were probably like, man, you guys are romanticizing the eighties a lot. And it really, they really weren't that great. If you lived through them. Yeah. I mean, some, don't get me wrong. There's some good music, but a lot of the pop stuff, I just, uh, yeah, it doesn't, I'm like, man, I I lived through this once. I don't need to go. It's, it, it is interesting. Um, time and distance will do strange things. Like in the eighties, I was a complete snob about certain types of music, like hated. And I, it, the best example I can think of is Def Leppard, right? Like this hair metal. I was like, what is this? What, this is garbage. This is awful. Now, 30 some odd years later, I don't mind hearing it when it pops up on the radio. I'm like, oh, I remember I was in high school when Pour Some Sugar on Me was a, a popular, and suddenly I'm more tolerant of it. So I, I don't know. There's there's a weird effect that, that happens when you kind of go back. I, I find myself being much more tolerant of things that I was way snobbish about back in the 80s. Yeah, it's true. I suppose, you know, there's something to be said for kind of mellowing out with uh, with old age. So so having, uh, you know, decided on the the, the time frame and and you know, the kind of the tone of the story, that big sort of bold over the top. And you mentioned 80s fashion. Whenever I hear 80s men's fashion, of course, my mind always immediately goes to Miami Vice because that was such a epitome of that. Um, But, but as I said, you, you had a couple of previous successful campaigns with this. So um, talk a little bit about kind of the community that that was built around that. And, and, you know, obviously they're following you over to the Zoop campaign for volume three now. Um, but I, I think, you know, perhaps for those of us that lived through it or maybe the people mm-hmm. that, you know, are new to it that do have this sort of romantic view of looking at it, um, you've it really seems like you've captured something and, and tapped into something. So how has it been with those previous campaigns and with this community that's been built around this title? Well, if, and to front load the whole conversation, I, I have to say when I had the idea to start doing this, um, as a project, it really was in my mind going to be kind of a small thing for me to sort of revisit this abandoned spy novel concept that I had when I was a kid, and just kind of as a lark. You know, I was like, I- I'm just going to see if this works. You know, I'll do one issue of of a comic and do a Kickstarter, and you know, if it pays for itself, then great. You know, it- it's just really kind of my expectations were, were kind of super low. Um, and I was nervous too, because there's a, an inherent silliness to what a, a 15 year old writes, <laughs> you know, about international intrigue and espionage from a 15 year old perspective from the 1980s could be a little skewed. And so I knew I had to fix a lot of things. I knew I had to modernize things and, and certainly, um, the idea of making it more adult content to, to add some sexiness to it uh, never occurred to me back in the day, but now it's like, Oh no, no, that's, you know, if you come up with a title like sex spies and rock and roll, then you kind of have to have some sex and some spies and, and some rock and roll in the, in the book. Otherwise people are going to be upset. Um, I, I will say just in case anybody kind of goes, Oh, sex makes me uncomfortable. Uh, the artists I work with who are from other countries, it does not make them uncomfortable in the least. It's just an American thing. It's just being uncomfortable about sex is an American thing. Uh, but um, for the most part, it's it's done with uh, uh, tongue in cheek. It's very, you know, whimsical, if you will. So it, it's not 
meant to be raunchy or it's not meant to be pornographic. It's, it, you know, sometimes it's a little silly. Sometimes it's a little, you know, sexy, but which I think most people would relate to and go, yeah, like, like normal sex. It's a little silly, it's a little fun. It's a little, you know, mixed bag, but, um, but yeah, no, when the first campaign happened, I had very low expectations, but it took off really, really quickly uh, beyond my expectations. And I had to, as it was on Kickstarter, I had to sort of add stretch goals. And what am I going to do for a stretch goal? And one of the things that I just, as a lark, put in there, because a friend of mine who had read these stories back in the 80s said, hey, if you do a Kickstarter for this um, and you have an option for someone to be drawn into the book as a character, which a lot of Kickstarters will do, I want to do that. I was like, okay. So I just put that category in there just for him, basically, and had five options that people – and boom, people snapped them up immediately. Like, oh, I, you know, I want to be in a 1980s spy story. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? Uh, so – those were really popular. I kept adding more. And then for the stretch goals, I, I was like, well, I'll do another six page backup story, like turn an extra backup feature because I had to have somewhere to put all these spies, all these extra spies that, that were popping up. And it just kept going. And it went from being a planned 48 page book to being a hundred and almost 20 pages by the end of the Kickstarter. And I just sort of sat back and I thought, there must be something here, be it nostalgia, be it whatever, that people find appealing, that's a, that is attractive to them as as readers or as people who want to support something, and and so it was very affirming to do that, and I I had the idea of I'm going to spin the main feature off into its own solo book and keep doing the anthology, so I did a small Kickstarter um, six months after that, uh, a little over a year ago at this point. The goal was very small, just to print the main feature with extra pages as a solo title. And that campaign did better than the first one, because people who missed the first one also wanted to come back and get the book, the original book. And so it just kept growing and growing. And, you know, I did the the second uh, volume as well, and, and it grew even more beyond that. So I, it's just weird. I, I don't know. I can't put my finger on, on why... It became so popular. I'm certainly glad it did, but it's given me other interesting problems to solve, and I'm, I'm happy to try and solve them as far as creating more content. Yeah, what what are the the challenges specifically? I mean, um, you moved over to Zoop, so that helps out with some things logistically. Uh, yes. but, and it seems like you have a dedicated, you know, readership, which you know is is good because that means you're going to get funded and you're going to create it. So, yeah, where does the challenge now now lie for you with this project? Well, the, um, the I'm, I'm still suffering through the, the previous challenges. Uh, that, that bigger Kickstarter campaign that I had, which is, is just now uh, in its final stages of fulfillment, uh, it had 800 backers uh, for that second campaign. So it almost doubled the first campaign, which was around 420 backers, which was, was plenty, you know, uh, on the face of it. You know, you're very lucky on Kickstarter if you can get a couple hundred people to support your project. But, uh, you know, by the time I did that second one, there were over 800 backers. And, you know, once you take out the digital only backers, I still had to package and, and mail 600 odd packages to people. And so 
the problem for me was just the logistics. It, was, it became almost unmanageable, you know, and again, mixed blessing, you know, it's a good problem to have that so many people want to support it. But uh, the logistics were, were just kicking my butt. And so Zoop came along at just the right time, basically, you know, saying, we want creators to create, we'll handle the printing and the shipping and the and all the logistics there. So, um, so for me, you know, right now, the, the, the biggest problem or the biggest shift that I have to solve is getting into this new mode of just creating and sort of shifting out of that, uh, that mode of, of still packaging. I mean, I was at the post office today. I was, I dropped off uh, a dozen packages. So I'm, I'm still sending stuff out the door from the, the recent campaigns and still trying to fulfill all of that while moving everything forward. So I'm, I'm hoping that eventually I just don't have to worry about that part of it anymore. Cause right. I, yeah. I'm not very, I'm not very good at it <laughs> and it's, it's the least creative part. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with what the guys at Zoop uh, kind of brought to the table when they, they approached me. Um, and I, and I think they saw it too. They saw, Whoa, this, this campaign between in a six month period between campaign one and campaign two went from 400 to 800 backers. And, you know, maybe they saw it and they took pity because they're like, man, that sucks for that guy. <laughs> He's going to have to be doing all this stuff. Uh, so they offered me a chance to, to let them take that off my hands. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy about that. <clears throat> the um, I, I've got it plotted out for now, you know, up to 10 volumes of, of the anthology book. And, and I'm working on scripts and I'm I'm kind of able to work ahead a little bit more now than I was before. So uh, just keeping the cash flow going so that I can continue to pay artists without massive interruptions of, of six months or, or whatever between getting them to do pages. I would love it if, if it was an ongoing constant, constant thing. So that's, that's the problem I have to solve now is making it so that every day I'm working on new pages. Yeah. I mean, do you want to stay with the self-publishing model or, or would you want to go to monthly? Like what? quarterly perhaps like what's your you know long-term goal if you're able to to sustain that yeah my dream for the for the anthology book would be a quarterly kind of thing uh i think it's more realistic uh to make it twice a year which is almost what i'm at now just out of these these first campaigns the the first campaign was in june of 2021 so it's only been a year and a half since sex spies and rock and roll started um, and, you know, we're up to volume three now. So, I, I mean, I feel pretty good about that pace because that's a lot faster. I, I love a lot of these Kickstarter type projects and I've backed a number of them over the past four or five years, but they're only up to issue four of like a 20 page comic because they are able to put out one a year. Mm -hmm. And I know as a creator, that's frustrating because you want to pick up the pace of it, but the just logistics of self-publishing make it so that, you know, it's impossible to really get it out much faster. So the idea is that I'm, I'm out of the anthology, I'm creating spinoff stories. And, you know, the anthology, if I can keep it going twice a year, and then between that publish another issue of this storyline or another issue of that storyline, uh, I, I would be happy with that until I can get it to an actual publisher, you know, get it to that next level and, and get it into uh you know, diamonds catalog or, or whatever to get it into shops. And and that would be the ultimate goal. But you have to really stockpile and have enough material. You know, you have to be several issues ahead 
so that you can keep that schedule. Once you're on that monthly schedule, you know, you've got to kind of keep it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, slow steps. I, I've kind of determined that I'm going to make 2023 the year that I set all of those wheels in motion. And, and it feels like I'm heading in that direction. So, you know, f- fingers crossed. But bi-monthly would be great for the regular book titles. But at, at this point, if I can get them out quarterly, I would be I would be fine with that, too. Uh, and a lot of artists, you know, they're not full-time artists. It's, none of us are doing this as like, you know, full-time career. So the artists are not able to turn out 30 pages a month. You know, they're they're working on the weekends because they love it. And they, and they want to be discovered, obviously, you know, by probably DC and Marvel, right? Everybody wants to, it's like, yeah. hey, that yeah. kid started out in a little Kickstarter book and now he's drawing Spider-Man or, or whatever. Right. You know, everybody, yeah. everybody dreams big. Um but yeah, just, uh, you know, they're not able to produce it as quickly as would be needed to, to maintain a monthly schedule. So baby steps, you know, I have to kind of remind myself, like, you know, step at a time. It's only been a year and a half and it's already insanely beyond what I had hoped. So uh, <laughs> keep keep it under control, you know. Yeah, and we're talking about this as, as kind of an anthology type. So, you know, any number of different types of spy stories, whether the spies are in that James Bond fashion, you know, and suave and British or whatever, or more maybe action oriented, uh, like Tom Cruise type, you know, American spies, what have you. Um, but are there, you know, you mentioned spinning off some of them into their own, you know, ongoing thing. But is there a through line with some of these? Like if I, because we'll talk about the yeah, two yeah. in a minute, um, you know, you can go back and get the volumes that you missed. Are you going to see some of the same characters recur? Yeah. In fact, that's, uh, it's so interesting that after this whole thing started, how much I learned about some of these characters and, and what they informed me about how they were going to, to grow and manifest themselves in the future. I know it sounds weird and you, know, you hear writers talk about, oh, the characters tell me what to do, but it's true to a certain extent. As this thing unfolded, Originally, it was one story set in 1985 based on what I'd written when I was a kid. And when I created the backups, the first idea, the first incarnation, uh, because uh, my son's screenplay uh, story that I was adapting into, into a backup feature had no direct relation or connection to my story, at least nothing that I could see or find. And I was like, well, this this could just be a book where it's just, they don't have to connect. And the second backup feature didn't seem to have a connection either, except that the artist accidentally drew uh, the main character in a way that looked similar to one of the supporting characters in my story. And I just kind of went, well, wait a minute. That could be the same guy three years later you know, on this different kind of set of circumstances. And the audience reading it might be like, I wonder how he got from point A to, to here and to this story. And I just sort of thought, maybe I can connect all of these together so that when when I'm done with it, ever how long that takes, somebody could sit down at the beginning, read all of it front to back and go, oh, wow, it all makes one big story that spans 10, 15, 20 years in, in storytelling. Uh, and it really cr- caused a creativity uh, surge for me because then I was like, I, now that I'm committed that all these stories are going to weave together into a larger image, you know, at the end, 
connecting my son's story, which is more modern to my story became a challenge. Like, Oh, how do I solve this challenge? How does, how do these characters relate to these characters? And, and now I have all this space in between to fill in with more stories. It's kind of like, um, like the star Wars stuff on Disney plus right now. It's like, we're telling stories in between this movie or that movie or that movie that fills in and creates a bigger picture. And, and, Man, that turned into just such an insane amount of fun to suddenly have that as as the new creative direction. And it didn't happen until I was well in, into the process of the first book. But now that's that's the mandate is everything is connected. Everything will all tie together in 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 a way that will be fulfilling for a reader who reads it all. You know, fingers crossed. Yeah, and uh, like I said, uh, this campaign that's running on Zoop right now, uh, if you've missed those first volumes, they're available. You can get them digitally. Yes. Um, you can get hard copies. So talk a little bit about some of the tiers and, and rewards, especially some of the extras beyond just the books that are available. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the, Zoop, uh, the Zoop folks have put together a really super campaign. And that's another thing that they do. Is they built this whole campaign uh, based on conversations I had with them. And as you said, you can get the digital one. And, uh, you know, I really pushed this on some of the other campaigns I did because um, it, international shipping is very expensive right now. It costs more to ship a book than the book itself. You know, you, you pay 10 bucks for a comic and it's 25 bucks to ship it to Europe. It, it's insane. So I, I really pushed digital as an option for international backers. It's like, you know, you, you can still support this and get it because the artists are from other countries and I, I think there's interest overseas. So you can get the, the this new book or all of the other books in digital form uh, as well. I created a, um, like a, a dossier book, which is like an old uh, DC who's who guide to all the characters, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that's, that's available as well in hard copy and digital copy. Uh, the spinoff books, uh, there are two titles that spun off of the, uh, the main the main anthology book. Uh, both of those are on their second issue now with this third volume. You can pick up both of those issues of both of those series, physical or digital copies. Um, and some of the add-ons, kind of fun. Um, I, I, I'm lucky enough to know some people. <laughs> So I've, I've worked with and, and, and helped Mike Grell publish some of uh, his creator-owned stuff. He has done a pinup for me that's available. It's a nice black and white uh, pinup that's a, a takeoff of the cover of James Bond, Permission to Die, number one, that he did back in the uh, late 80s. Uh, Ramona Frayden did a pinup for me. Uh, her art rep is the same as Mike's. And so I just reached out and said, you know, Ramona Frayden is this great, female icon of, of, of comics, would she be interested in doing a pinup uh, for the book? And they, and she said, yes. So I've got that. Um, and I'm just scrolling through the campaign looking now. Uh, several of the artists who are doing the book are uh, opening up to do commissions, uh, really inexpensive commissions, uh, if I do say so. Uh, head sketches or full figure sketches. And there's a bunch of those available from uh, three, uh, four, four of the different artists that work on the anthology book. Uh, four really unique styles, and there is a chance to be drawn as a character in one of the stories that you can get on the campaign as well. Uh, so that's it for right now on the campaign. Uh, we're talking about adding some extra little things uh, from the Kickstarters. I have uh, stockpiles of 
art prints uh, that artists have done for the books, as well as uh, a set of a dozen trading cards that we created as little Kickstarter bonuses. I still have boxes full of that stuff, so we're going to make those available too. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm, I'll take this opportunity to, to remind everybody, uh, as I always do when we talk to these self-publishing creators, uh, the best way that you can help out Jeff and his co-collaborators here, other than joining the campaign, because maybe you want to join the campaign, but money's tight right now. You just don't have the means um, or, or you know, conversely, maybe ah, I'm just not into spy stuff. Um, you can still help out. Share this on social media. Get the word out. You know, mention it at your local comic shop. Mention it to your retailer. Let's get as many eyes on this thing as possible so that it fully funds. There's uh, about 21 days left as Jeff and I are chatting. So a little less than 20 days probably by the time you hear this. Uh, and the campaign has about almost 6500 of a $10,000 uh, goal reach. So uh, over halfway. And we definitely want uh, Jeff and his uh collaborators here to uh to get this in the hands of their loyal sex spies and rock and roll uh readers as well as bring on new readers so again if you're not able to join the campaign then please just uh just share it on social media so uh i really appreciate the time jeff as we're winding down here anything else you want to share with our listeners well you know i what you said was really a really great um i do feel like the self-publishing, whether it be Kickstarter or Zoop or Indiegogo, there's there's a lot of different places you can do this now. Web comics, you know, I, I know Substack is becoming really big for creators. Uh, I'm just kind of amazed at at how you couldn't have done this 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, when I originally thought to do this as a comic was back in the early 90s, and I, I look back at it now and I'm like, thank goodness it didn't go anywhere because it would have been a miserable failure lost in, in the dust bins of, of comicdom if I had done it in the 90s. Um, it could have only happened now because if you're creative, you've got a story, you've got something you want to do, there's an avenue to do it between the social media. And I consider Kickstarter type things to be an extension of social media. It is a community of creators who are creating, but they're also helping each other. Uh, and there's a lot of camaraderie that goes into that uh, through social media groups and, and whatnot. Defining these artists through social media groups. Uh, boy, you know, and here's the, the thing I would leave with people is you, if you ever wanted to do this, you don't have an excuse not to. <laughs> right. With, with what is available to you at this point in time. And, and it's very satisfying, very fulfilling. Uh, you don't have to be that successful to be successful at it. You you can do a hundred copies of a book pretty easily and raise enough money to to offset the cost. It's it's a way of fulfilling some creative dreams, and I really think that this type of publishing is the new independent comics publishing model in the industry. I, I think what's happening now with with Zoop and Kickstarter and Indiegogo is going to change the way the comic industry moves forward from here. We already see with the big companies, how corporatized things have become and IP obsessive things. And, you know, uh, a lot of the smaller publishers are really struggling now to kind of keep up with these giant, you know, corporations, but here's this pocket of people over there that are just doing it and not having to worry about all that stuff. So it's very liberating. And I, I encourage anyone to do it. And, 
you know, support as much of the other stuff you see as you can. And if you, if you like what I'm doing, please, you know, th throw a couple of bucks our way if you can. I think you'll dig it. I really think people will like it. Uh, even if you don't like spies, if you like sex and you like rock and roll, there's stuff for everybody. <laughs> no, that is not so for everybody. I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's definitely more of a, a grown-ups kind of thing. But, you know, there, there's a lot of fun to be had. And um, I'm having fun creating it. So if, if you think this is the kind of thing that you would find fun, check it out. And then, as, as Jace was saying, uh, share it. Because, you know, maybe it's not your cup of tea, but you might know somebody who would really dig it. And that's the way we all kind of grow and move forward. So, yeah, yeah. Well, well said, Jeff. And to kind of piggyback on that, I'd say, yeah, there are, it's never been easier to, to create your own book. Like you said, there are no excuses. The other thing is if you're, if you're an aspiring comic creator and you, you know, you're struggling, oh, I just can't seem to break in. Well, you know, if to you breaking in is writing Batman or Spider-Man, like one person gets to do that at a time, right? Out of yep thousands if not ten thousands of writers that want their shot so you know you're, you're talking about literally one person in the world that's yeah so if yeah. that's your excuse you know yeah, you're about yeah. It, yeah you're going about it the wrong way there's if you say you're a, a aspiring writer you know for comics or or artist you can just do it yourself like do the thing you want you know and and that could lead to, to other things um but yeah well, yeah and and, the, and these artists that i found i mean i found them because they're posting their artwork on uh artist groups online or through their instagram pages or deviant art or any of these other sites and they're posting it and people are finding it and and i'm reaching out to artists and going how can i hire you to do something for me it, it really is um it's so much better than it was before where you had to you know schlep your your portfolio to a comic-con and hope that there was yeah. an editor there who would look at it and yeah. then say well can you fly to, to the office in new york next week and show it to the public or whatever um i just it was insane you know the industry was nuts and now this is the leveling agent for people who want to break in and like you were saying jace you know your definition of breaking in might need to be adjusted a little bit but at the end of the day do you do you want to be writing Batman or do you just want to be telling stories in this medium? You know, what, what is more important? Cause that all or nothing thing is going to be really hard yeah, <laughs> to do. hundred percent. You know, yeah. uh, but you can tell your story. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be Batman or Spider-Man. Maybe you've got something else in you that you've been wanting to get out. Here's your chance, you know? And, and again, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for not trying it. Uh, you got to believe in yourself. And I struggle with imposter syndrome in a big, big way. Uh, every time I launch a campaign and I go to hit that launch button, I think I, in my head, the first thing I think is nobody's going to show up this time. Nobody cares. And then boom, suddenly it, it, it's, it's just amazing to see strangers who believe in my vision. And, yeah, well, and other people yeah, that's the other side of the coin that I wanted to, to mention, you know, we talk about, or, you know, you mentioned this is really the independent model these days. You know, here's the thing, and and you know, I'm I'm guilty of it as well. Worried about and constantly saying we knew we need new new readership. Well, the thing is, as you said, there's been more of these, you know, self-published and Indiegogo, Kickstarter, and all that sort of thing than there ever have been in the past. Um, so the, the maybe the readership is still the, there in the same numbers, just in a different way, because the, clearly there's an appetite for for comics, right? Whether it's digital or the physical, 
Well, you're talking about story yeah. that's told with words and pictures. I think the readership is still there. That's why these campaigns are succeeding. Well, and I'll tell you another thing that's that's really a stark kind of thing uh, as far as classic creators. Uh, you know, I mentioned I, I work with Mike Grell, but um, and Mike has had success on Kickstarter. Jim Starlin, Ron Randall, Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, just a few names that I can mention of guys that I've I've met and chatted with who are exclusively doing their work now through the self-publishing model and using platforms like Kickstarter and like Zoop to get their stuff out there. And it's because they have a fan base who still want to buy comics drawn by Mike Grell and the big publishers are not publishing them. So if, you know, like I said, Star, Jim Starlin just launched a brand new uh, Dreadstar Kickstarter campaign. He's got fans. He's got enough fans to pay for the creation and the publication of, of a new, I don't know, it's probably about a 70 some odd page hardcover graphic novel. The big companies are not really giving these guys the work anymore, but they found another path because they have fans who are willing to go, I'll buy what Jim Starlin's making if I knew where to find it. And, it, and now you know where to find it. And so there's, there's, there's this weird thing happening with, with the crowdfunding. A lot of classic creators are turning to it now. And a lot of young up-and-coming creators and first-timers are jumping into it as well. I have to say it's an exciting thing to be a part of just because you kind of look at it and go, there is a passion for this. There is a large audience looking for a certain type of storytelling, a certain type of comic that they're not getting from the uh, from the big publishers. And Kickstarter during the pandemic, uh, as an example, had their most successful years because creators were putting campaigns up on, on Kickstarter and fans weren't able to go to conventions, but they were able to support their favorite creators through this uh, crowdfunding platform. So uh, we haven't seen the full impact of it yet, but I, I think, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really big game changer to the industry sooner than later. Yeah. In a lot of ways, uh, it already has, uh, has changed. So, uh, again, Jeff, thanks so yeah. much for taking the time to, to chat about the campaign. Best of luck, uh, everybody. Thank you. A reminder that there will be a link in the show notes. Um, so if you can't find the campaign by going to zoop.gg, you can go and just click, uh, and I'll take you right to, uh, to the page. But I do encourage you to go visit the campaign page, check it out, see the style of art. Uh, there's some example pages there. You can check out the tiers and the, and the rewards. Uh, I will also put a link to the social media for, um, for Jeff. Uh, where's the best place to find you, Jeff, uh, online if people have questions or just want to reach out? Yeah, the, uh, the easiest place is uh, right now Facebook. I have uh, my own Facebook page, but I also create pages for all of the projects I do. So there is a Sex, Spies, and Rock and Roll uh, comic book Facebook page as well as as others uh, so you know if you if you just go looking for sex spies and rock and roll chances are you'll find me not not very far behind all right sounds good <laughs> so i'll put, in, I'll put instagram links, yeah. as well yeah, yeah I'll put, instagram, uh, as well. instagram as well okay i'll put links to those in the show notes uh, everybody so if you're having trouble finding them just go and click there so uh jeff thanks again it's been a real pleasure absolutely uh, jace thanks so much for this yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so to you listeners, we want to extend our thanks to you as well for listening. We appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. 
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.